Hi, I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpenlath. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is independent journalist, speaker, and blogger, Audrey Waters. Her new book, Teaching Machines, The History of Personalized Learning, was just published by MIT Press. Welcome, Audrey, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What is the significance of the title of your book? I like the kind of play on words that's in the in the title. Um, of course, teaching machines refers to the actual machines, the physical machines that were invented and promoted in mid-20th century by educational psychologists like B.F. Skinner. Um, but I think that there's also the idea that schools are becoming quite mechanized and that, in fact, students feel as though they're kind of the machines. They're, they're part of this larger machine. And then, of course, I think it's also a nod to some of the stuff that's happening today that's not really talked about in my book with the idea of machine learning and artificial intelligence and that somehow the future of teaching and the future of learning are very much going to be this, um, the realm of the machine. What is, what is personalized learning? Uh, that's, I guess I didn't talk about the part after the colon. <laughs> I love the academic titles of the colon and then, and then the rest of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think personalized learning is something that's really fascinating to me because I think in so many ways, it really appeals to this fundamental belief, um, American belief in the individual, in individualism, and that schools perhaps are not individualized enough. Schools are a mass institution. Um, a public education or is responsible for educating the public. And so a complaint about schools for a very long time, this isn't an, a new complaint that's, although it's, I think, associated with computers today, this idea that schools are really, are not very good at individualizing education. And the rise of the teaching machines in the mid 20th century was very much intertwined with this idea of making sure that we could personalize learning. And I think sort of strangely, paradoxically, personalize learning by automating it through machinery. So it's, it's sort of an alternative to differentiated instruction. I mean, people talk about the need to personalize the instruction by teachers being able to address students individual needs within the classroom setting. And this is saying, well, just we'll give everybody a machine and they can go do it on their own. Exactly. I think that that's, that is the idea. And I think that, it, you know, I think that the, the concept of personal or the, the phrase personalized learning, it really is appealing to a lot of people. And I think when you drill down into it, there are some very different visions of what people talk about. Because I think, of course, some of the personalized learning that we see today that's particularly associated with algorithms and with computer-based education, it really isn't what I would think of as personalized at all. It's not as though if you are a seven-year-old who loves penguins, that the algorithm is going to suggest to you, you know, sort of engage your curiosity and inquiry and send you down a path to penguin research. It's really going to, um, I think, just deliver, ideally, the, the program's work by delivering the standardized curriculum just at a pace 
that is supposedly geared to you. So it's not personalized in the way of every one of us gets to sort of follow our own curiosity. Rather, it's just that the pace of instruction is supposedly geared towards each of us individually. So perhaps in some ways, but not entirely closer to the differentiation that you talked about. And is that as true of today's computers as it was of the teaching machines? I think so. I mean, I, I think that, you know, again, despite all of this hype that we hear today, that computers, partially because they uh, collect so much data about students, right? They, they know not just sort of where students are in terms of their potential mastery of a subject, but they know things like, you know, what time of day does is the student working on a subject? For how long do they have the application open? Where, where is their computer physically located? There's just a massive amount of data that, these, that um, computers collect about students. And so supposedly all of this is going in to feed some magical algorithm that's going to dial things even further. But I think a lot of that still is sort of hype and not true. And I'm not sure we'd want it <laughs> if it was true. But I do think that in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is very reminiscent of the stuff that happened in the mid 20th century. Despite, again, this talk from out of, you know, a lot of ed tech entrepreneurs that talk about how innovative and exciting and brand new this concept is, it's quite familiar. It's, you know, it's, it's actually quite reminiscent of the stuff that, you know, Skinner, for example, was doing pre-computer. I'm still processing your, your penguin example um, <laughs> and this idea of personalized and differentiated instruction, because it's really, if you're doing project-based learning, then you really are giving students a chance yeah. to go off and follow their bent around penguins where somebody else can go off and follow their bent around pigeons, say. <laughs> are there any of these computer-based programs that try to do that kind of stuff, that try to let you go off in your own direction? No, not really. I mean, and I think we can think about the ways in which, you know, humans and human teachers help students in finding finding those, those interests as well. But really, the computer-based education is much less likely to be project-based. I think Sometimes it can be used in conjunction with a, with a more project-based focus, but I think that by and large, computer-assisted instruction is really going to move students through oftentimes much more, I don't want to say basic because that's not the right word for it, but much sort of like the fundamentals that in some ways computers are better, computers are better at doing. People are better at doing the project, doing and helping students find their interests and passions for project-based learning. Computers aren't so good at that. Computers really can, you know, as I think Seymour Papert talked about when he wrote his book, Mindstorms, in, in 1980, that this the computer programs the child. The computers are very good at running students through their paces, getting them to sort of learn their multiplication tables quickly, things like that. But a computer is unlikely to suggest to students, if you're interested in you know, penguins, here are people to talk to, and perhaps here are five other flightless bird, birds that might interest you as well. Well, I don't know, Audrey. Amazon seems to do that pretty well. <laughs> does it? I'm not sure it does, because, you know, I buy one thing on Amazon, and I think that it suggests like five of the same thing. <laughs> but in terms of books, 
I mean, they really can track your interests and say Netflix will figure out that, you know, I mainly watch documentaries and I'm not sure that the technology isn't there if they wanted to do it. I disagree. I mean, I think that in some ways that these are still very bounded. These are still very bounded recommendations, right? Amazon isn't going to suggest to you books from your local bookstore, for example. It's only within the Amazon world. It's only within the Netflix world. Netflix is only going to suggest to you things that it has the licensing to. And I think in that way, some of the educational software is quite similar because it's only going to suggest to students, even if it were, say, able to sort of promote more of a more personal, like have the sort of more personalization like we think of in terms of shopping recommendations or viewing recommendations, it's still very likely to be circumscribed by the way in which the curriculum is already laid out for different different grade levels. So again, it's unlikely to suggest to a fourth grader to do trigonometry. It's unlikely to suggest anything about ornithology because ornithology doesn't really live in the, the K through 12 curriculum as you know, as currently outlined by 50 states. Part of the problem though, or the challenge is that in these programs, they don't really ask for your interests. It sounds as though you have a lot of choices in the, in the way that these, that Amazon or Netflix. Yeah, I think sometimes they do. And it's also, it's always, I think, very insulting to students, the ways in which those choices are represented. Like they'll say, for example, like some of the, some of the so-called personalized study tools around grammar or math will ask students, like, what are your interests? And they'll give them a selection of like, are you interested in sports or are you interested in music? And then the worksheets that are generated by these, these digital worksheets that are generated, sort of have a fill in the blank look as though, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not personalized. I mean, it's, I saw one example once fairly recently of the students could say that they were interested in music and the worksheet generated a bunch of questions that that the examples of the singers in, in, the, in the worksheet were like John Cougar Mellencamp, who, I mean, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, right? I mean, I know who John Cougar Mellencamp is, but I'm going to bet my bottom dollar that very <laughs> few third graders today know Jack and Diane. And so I think, you know, it's, I think it's really insulting the, the way in which this kind of stuff, if you're saying you're interested in sports, I mean, it might suggest you know, geolocated, say, you know, for, for you and I, like, oh, well, you must be a Giants fan or, or, you know, you must be an A's fan. But that maybe that's not the sport that we're interested. Maybe we are super interested in tennis or marathon running. So are you saying that the idea is bad or that it's, it's badly executed? I don't think that, I think the idea of one of the responsibilities, I think, of adults and adults in general, educators specifically, is to help students experience things that they don't even know that they don't know. Many children aren't going to know that perhaps that they are interested in the cello. It's not something that you come across in your day-to-day life, the cello just, you know, I mean, some, some children perhaps from some households will have cello, cello experience, but I think it's the responsibility of the adult to help expand their horizons and introduce them things that they wouldn't know that they were interested in. If we let sort of six and seven-year-olds dictate the, what their line of inquiry might be, we might have a lot of really serious penguin research 
I don't doubt that, but we might have a lot of research into other things that perhaps perhaps aren't going to give children give and give these future adults a rich understanding of the world around them. So I do think it's our responsibility to help introduce children to things that they might not ordinarily know. And so that idea of supporting people's interests and helping them uncover what their interests might even be, I think is really crucial. But I think that that is the role of humans and less something that we can program. I think that that's traditionally, I think, often been the role of the librarian. And unfortunately, I think that we are too quick to cut that kind of port role in a school and much too eager, I think, to sort of introduce these kinds of algorithmic suggestions to students that I really don't think are going to uncover uncover new and exciting inquiry and really foster sort of open thinking among among kids. So a lot of this, it sounds like, goes to some of the fundamental questions about what the purpose of education is or how people conceive of education, whether it's to simply pass on the basics of received knowledge or whether in a Dewean sense, it's to encourage exploration, encourage relationships, encourage thinking. Yes. And it's interesting that some of this seems to come wrapped up in the promises that it's going to be expanding education, whereas it sounds as though it may really be more suited to simply, these are the facts that you're supposed to know, and I'm going to help you or not I because it's the computer, but the computer will help you learn these facts. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a a historian of education, um, Ellen Conliff-Legeman, who has often says that to help students, to help her students understand the history of education in the United States, she says that Dewey lost and Thorndike won. You know, that John, John Dewey's vision of what we've been talking about, project based learning, inquiry-based learning, this response, this idea that, that as, a, as a student, one is, I uh, think, thinking about one's future role as a citizen. That's not the model that has won out. The model that won out is the model of, of Thorndike, who I, I talk a little bit in, in my book. Thorndike was a very early education psychologist, a professor at Columbia University, and really, I think, one of the earliest sort of in the idea of studying education as a science, but as a quantify as something that can be quantifiable. So of course he's his legacy is all wrapped up in standardized testing. He did like many researchers at his time, he did a lot of work on animals and so inferred from animal behavior how humans learned. He's responsible for the, the phrase the learning curve, for example, which is how quickly it takes a mouse to figure out how to get out of the maze. And you can graph that and that's a curve and that's the learning curve. But Thorndike, this idea of this sort of measurable standard, like using standardized tests, that education is a science and that we can just, if we just have more data and we test better, we can sort of dial in the teaching, I think is really Thorn, Thorndike's vision. And Ellen Conley-Flegman talks about that. And I sort of, I'd like to add a little corollary to that, which is to understand the history of education technology in the U.S., you have to understand that Skinner won and that Seymour Papert lost, right? And so I think Skinner really maps quite neatly onto Thorndike, this idea that not only does 
is stuff quantifiable, but again, we can sort of engineer with machines and really dial that in, dial in the instruction. And Papert's vision, I think, is much more about the learner, much more closely associated, I think, with Dewey. And this idea that I think what we see in ed tech is much more about what, again, what Papert said, the, the machine programming the child, and much less about the sort of open-ended inquiry that children might have when it comes to technology or any other way, I think, of, of knowing the world. Yeah, I mean, Skinner's obviously a super important figure in instructing um, some of this. Can you talk a little bit more for people who aren't as familiar? Yeah. I feel sort of cursed. <laughs> I feel like the kid in the in the Sixth Sense movie that would lie there saying, I see dead people. Like, I feel like since I started studying B.F. Skinner that I see behavior, I'm like, I see behaviorism everywhere. Skinner, I think, was one of, arguably, I think, one of the most well-known public scientists of the 20th century. He was a professor at Harvard. He was professor elsewhere first, but he was a professor at Harvard. He was sort of on television, on the cover of magazines. People knew his name. He was a well-known public intellectual. Um, I joke sometimes, I think that if, if there were TED Talks during his time, he would have given, he would have definitely had some TED Talks about um, probably about education technology, but possibly about how to train your dog, one or the other. And he's best known, I think, perhaps the casual person is sort of for training pigeons. Um, he did a lot of work with pigeons to help develop his idea of operant conditioning, really fundamental to his idea of behaviorism, which is if that positive reinforcement is how you can shape behaviors. And for Skinner, Behavior equals learning. That's how we know if someone's learning is through behavior. I don't mean just like physical behavior, like how one acts, but Skinner thought you couldn't see the mind. You could only see behavior. So writing, speaking were also behaviors for Skinner. He developed a teaching machine. He didn't like how his daughter's class worked. And he thought that kids don't get immediate positive reinforcement in the classroom. And the way to get immediate positive reinforcement is through a machine. So he went home, built a little machine that would do that, give students a, a, a problem. And when they answered it, they would get immediate feedback. And the way he designed it, immediate positive feedback, because they get the question right. And that, would, that was sort of the basis for how he developed his notion of programmed instruction and Really, I think it's foundational for how education technology has been built since. He wasn't working with computers, but computer-based education looks an awful lot like Skinner's vision. All this technology must have some sort of economic impact. Well, I mean, I think that schools spend a tremendous amount of money on, on technology. It's interesting to sort of debate. You can always ask sort of, is it worth it? But I, I think that it's been a potential market, I think, for a very long time. I think that businesses have seen schools as being a market for, for their devices. Um, it was something that Skinner himself really struggled with. I think many of the educational psychologists in the early and mid-20th century that were interested in developing these machines and selling them to schools struggled for a variety of reasons in getting the product into the classroom. And I think 
in some ways, education technology entrepreneurs have faced that for a, a very long time. Do you sell to individual teachers? Do you sell to school districts? Do you sell to affluent parents who can afford this supplemental device? I think entrepreneurs have taken, and businesses have taken different pathways to get their devices into the classroom. But I think that, you know, for a very long time, I think throughout the history of the 20th century, schools have invested in a variety of technologies in order to make education, again, this sort of very American idea and make it better, cheaper, faster, more efficient. That's, the, that's always the promise, I think, of the machine. Cheaper, faster, better, more efficient. And now, of course, things like Chromebooks and so forth are, even before the pandemic, districts were, were buying them because they seemed like they were the path to the future. They were glitzy. Nobody would say, oh, I don't want you know computer, that kind of thing. So that, I mean, at this point, there's a huge market in, in the computers themselves. One of the things that I think, sadly, as I allude to with Thorndike, the history of education technology and education technology testing are really tightly intertwined. And I think one of the reasons why pre-pandemic, we saw a real explosion in the adoption of computers was of course, because standardized testing was starting to move to the computer mandated in some ways by some of the things that the Obama administration did with race to the top, for example, encouraging (laughs) with air quotes around it, encouraging states with money to make the move for standardized testing to be administered on devices, on computers. And so I think that, you know, again, the, this relationship between the, the testing and the tech is really tightly intertwined. And then you can think about what does that mean that the tech ends up looking like? If the technology that students are given is technology that's really designed to facilitate standardized testing, that, that really, I think, circumscribes perhaps the kinds of devices and the kinds of things that students get to do with those devices when they do indeed end up getting their hands on them. In a 2020 talk that you shared on your blog, you said that technology shapes education and education shapes technology, and the two are shaped by ideologies, particularly capitalism and white supremacy. Could you unpack that for us? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, I do think that the you know, technology, as I just said, technology is really, I think, developed by companies with ideas in mind that are about profit. I will say I am not in the, I am not a fan of BF Skinner. I'm not a fan of behaviorism, despite finding operant conditioning to be a really great way to train my dog. I don't think it's a great way to train children, right? I don't think we can see children and pigeons as sort of this interchangeable entity for us to use his practices. That said, I really didn't want to make Skinner into being some sort of the villain of my book. I wanted to sort of paint a a richer picture of his own, his own interests and his own struggles, I think, in getting his ideas to market. And one of the things that you can see in my book and that Skinner himself struggled with is here's a guy who thought that he had the best ideas. He was working on the cutting edge of educational psychology. He knew the science. He knew the science of how students slash pigeons learn. 
And he was going to build a machine that worked for the best possible science. But that came into conflict with the interests, the financial interests of the companies that he tried to work with. They didn't give a damn about the science. They wanted to have a machine that would be cheap to produce, that they could sell a bunch to schools and that they could turn a profit on. I mean, that's that's how companies work. And I think that we still sort of see that today. Like, what are the what are the driving interests that dictate the kinds of machines, the kinds of software that ends up in the classroom? It's not that the best science wins. It's not the person, the ideas that are fully fleshed out and peer reviewed by the best cognitive science scientists and educational researchers. Those aren't the technologies that get adopted. They're the technologies that school districts can can afford, for example. I mean, you mentioned the Chromebooks. There's a reason that the Chromebook is so appealing to many school districts. There's a reason that the Google suite of educational tools is appealing to so many districts. And the reason is it's free. Uh, The Chromebooks aren't free, but you can either pay to have email and a suite of productivity software, or you can use this company that, that gives it for free. So the best tools in terms of science don't win out. And I think that that's, that's something that I think that, you know, education technology is reflects. I think the white supremacy part is also intertwined, frankly, with our schools as well. I mean, I think that these are institutions that have a long history of, of racism that are very much many of the teaching practices, the ways in which students are seen and disciplined and taught or not taught, the resources that go into schools. I think this is also a reflection of white supremacy. And I mentioned early that, earlier the kinds of things that you can do with, with technology. I think that the things that students get to do with technology are, can be very different based on the socioeconomic status of the student, the kind of student, the kind of school. And I think uh, race plays a role as well. I think that, again, you're much more likely to see education technology that's putting students through its, through their paces in schools that are um, that have lower socioeconomic status students, students of color, privileged students, white students, affluent students, tend not to have a lot of software that is drill and kill. They tend to have opportunities to do more of the kind of hands-on exploratory project-based learning. They tend not to be so, both the the pedagogy and the technology tends to not be driven by the standardized testing. And I think that increasingly because technology is so very much intertwined with data collection and data analysis, I think we do have to think about the ways in which school discipline, surveillance and school discipline also plays out in education technology. One of the really popular tools, unfortunately, over the pandemic has been the the online test proctoring software that many school districts and colleges have thought, have decided to implement. And these, this software is rife with all sorts of problems for students of color. Um, it uses facial recognition technology, for example, that tends not to um, recognize uh, darker skin, for example. 
And so students of color are often flagged as cheating um, by the software because there's not enough light on their face because the software struggles to see and um, surveil their faces. And so I just think that there are lots of ways in which education technology, again, reflects some of the reflect some of the deep problems that that our institutions that our institutions have had pre-tech as well. So that was a very long-winded answer. Very important. It's very difficult to untangle all these strands. So do you see any constructive use of personalized learning software? Uh, no, not really. I don't think so. I mean, I think that there is potentially lots of interesting uses of technology, of digital technology. I think that anything that really rests on this idea of algorithms is something that I'd be, I'm super hesitant about, right? I think that in some ways, algorithms are the antithesis of public education. One of the things, you know, one of the things I think that makes public education um, valuable is that it is accessible and in some ways, not entirely, but in some ways quite transparent. We know, for example, what's taught in schools because there are public, you know, there are public hearings, public debates, there are public school board meetings in which this kind of stuff is hashed out. Of course, the classroom door gets closed and things, you know, I think that this is one of the interesting things about pandemic-based learning is I think a lot of parents have seen into the classroom in ways that perhaps they, they hadn't before. But by and large, I think that the public part of public education means that it's responsible to and transparent to the public, not just to parents, not just to students, but to all of us. Algorithms aren't. Algorithms, they tend to be, they're black boxed. We don't see what goes into them. And so I'm really hesitant to have a future in which we don't actually know where these recommendations are coming from. I think you can see this play out, not just in the kinds of perhaps content recommendations that algorithms might make for students, you know, the, the penguin question. But algorithms, I think, that recommend students' careers and students' colleges to them. So this is another example where we don't know. We, we, we don't know the biases that are embedded in this software that might recommend to um, a Latina student, for example, that eh, we think she should go to community college. And we don't know why she either recommending community college and not an Ivy. Is it her grades? Is it her zip code? Is it her language spoken at home? Um, and that stuff is, is not transparent for school districts to be able to evaluate. They buy software that makes recommendations and the algorithm isn't something isn't something that school districts can evaluate. We don't, you know, we don't know why it would recommend certain things. And so I'm really wary of the of those because of course biases are absolutely baked into the software. Humans have biases as well, right? The, the students, uh, you know, a guidance counselor might also make pretty crappy, potentially racist recommendations. But I think we have a different kind of view into that than we would an algorithm, particularly folks who would trust and say, well, the, the algorithm said, and so we don't get to, you know, we don't get to question why someone is placed in a particular class or why someone is recommended to do something. And we, and this is already playing out. This is definitely already playing out often at the college level, but certainly with software that recommends what colleges 
students apply for. But at the college level, recommending certain majors for students, recommending certain classes for students. And it's not entirely clear why that recommendation occurs. This is a different question from what you're talking about with the algorithms making recommendations, for example, for colleges and so on. But can any of this software be a useful supplement in a constructivist or project-based learning setting? This is a really interesting question. I'm really enamored with this penguin idea, like, right? So what happens, what happens if our little penguin lover wants to pursue something that really struggles with, um, actually, I don't know enough about penguins to continue this analogy. But let's just say that um, she or he struggles with, with algebra. How do we how do we remediate the algebra in such a way that we aren't actually impeding their continued projects around studying, studying penguins? I do think that that's possible. I'm just not, not sure that that's kind of what we see happening. And, and I think, again, for me, and this is, this is sort of my, my own, I would say, philosophical and political bent too, I'm always interested in asking, why is it that we ought to, to use the machine and not the human, right? Is it a lack of resources? Why aren't we investing more resources in humans, right? If we are at a state where, where so many students need remediation, what's happened along the way? Before we jump in and say, well, we can use software to sort of catch everyone up to speed, I think we also need to diagnose what's happening along the way. And perhaps there are different human resources that we need to invest in as well. And I mean, in terms of investing in the student, but also investing in, in students feeling as though they have humans who care about and support them and are actually interested in helping them move forward. I think it's very common to have students who struggle be put on computers. I think it's, it's a very common for remediation and it tends to, it tends to sort of be the, the sort of credit recovery classes that aren't actually great in terms of teaching and learning, but I think are, are further drudgery, are really having students who are struggling end up spending more time doing digital worksheets and even less time doing the kinds of things that might interest them, partially because they're spending more time with a computer that's just running them through the paces, rather than engaging with somebody, a tutor, a mentor can actually help them and, and meet, them, meet them where they're at in terms of both the, the practical skills that they should be learning, but also you know, the other things that they're interested in as well. So this goes beyond the scope of your book, although it's obviously implied by it, but why do you think that we as, as the country so consistently pick these paths? Why? Why do you think that Dewey loses out to Thorndike and Pappert loses out to Skinner? Um, yeah. That's such a good question. I mean, I think that it's, you know, I think that there is so much of this that is bound up in our, in the sort of, like, as I said at the outset, it's very American, it's very American ideology, right? That this idea of individualism, for example, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing that so so painfully right now and throughout the the pandemic, not just in terms of schools, but in terms of lots of areas in life where people aren't really able to sort of think about the community, think about the society 
are much more interested in only thinking about themselves. I think we're very individualistic. I think Americans also, we really love our gadgets and we really believe, and this is a, a positive thing. We, I think we really do believe that technology is going to be the answer. And so I think we're very quick to sort of try to techno fix something rather than look at, say, the other structural issues that might actually be harder, but I think more meaningful in terms of rectifying problems. I think we, if Americans could, could push a button and fix problems, we would sign up for that in a heartbeat. We love the idea that a gadget is going to fix things and, and technology, computer technology really is able to sell itself as a gadget that's going to fix things. And, and Americans love that, not just in terms of school, but in terms of, of anything. We, we would love to be able to buy, a, buy something that you know, makes loud noises and whirls about and is colorful and fixes things rather than do the deep, I think the deep soul searching and the structural shifts that have to occur to actually make, make the world better. Yeah, I think you're so right. I also think we we talk a lot about relationships and I suppose and there are some relationships that people can have with gadgets that we're starting to see. But, you know, SEL and not just in a remedial sense is so important. Yes. And I don't think that we should be downplaying the significance of, of relationships. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things to me that's really so fundamental about education too is that in some ways it is a practice of care it, it's in its best it's a practice of caring for individual students caring for the class but also caring for the future caring for society at large and machines don't care I mean we can program things that make it look like they care you can get a little check-in your phone can give you a push notification every morning and say you know how you feeling today but your machine doesn't, you know, the phone doesn't care. Caring is something I think that's really important. And I think it's something that we should be very careful about as we sort of increasingly adopt these ways of sort of engineering education that further, that further distance. And I think actually diminish the role, the important role of care. Yeah. Surveillance and data analysis is not care. I mean, I think that that's the other piece. I think that many school administrators are being sold this idea that one should adopt this technology in order to better sort of better track, better manage, keep an eye on the students, perhaps from a place, a good place. But I think that, again, surveillance is not care. Surveillance is something different. Caring about your students, you notice when, when things are awry. It's not that you get a, a blip in the, you know, in the database that says, uh, you know, Johnny's scores have dipped by 3%. That's data, data analytics indicator. Rather, you can tell, you can tell by the way they carry their body. You can tell by the way that they look, by the way they engage with you and with one another. But that's, that's an act of care. And machines, machines won't, won't ever, <laughs> ever do that, no matter what the science fiction says. Yeah, I don't think there'll be too many writers talking about the fourth grade software that encouraged them. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, now that we're, at least we hope we're coming out of the pandemic, what are your thoughts on the experience of remote learning? Are there lessons to be learned from it? Yeah, I, I 
this is so interesting and sort of and sort of sad for me on one hand because I think it's it could have been an opportunity I think for many of us to ask some really well I should back up I think it has been an opportunity for us to ask some pretty important questions and raise some pretty important questions about what what do we expect schools to do I think for, at the outset I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic you would see on Twitter exasperated parents saying like, I think teachers should earn a million dollars a year because like I have two kids and how the hell does a teacher do this with 30? And so I, I think that there has been, there was a brief moment when people were like, wow, teaching is, is really hard and, and teachers are amazing. I think that we also saw the ways in which we have shifted onto schools so much more than just instruction right? Schools are responsible for, even though the funding, the funding doesn't, and the, you know, the regulatory mechanism doesn't really account for this. We know now the schools are responsible and teachers are responsible for a lot more than just making sure that the curriculum is imparted to a classroom, right? They're responsible for lunch. They're responsible for the sort of social development. They're responsible for, you know, physical, physical care, keeping an eye out for, abuse. The school is a community center. The school is a place where students can get medical care. I mean, it's schools are responsible for a lot more than just instruction. I hope we remember that and decide to fund, fund schools or, and, or support, you know, think about what other institutions we need to fund in order to bolster community health. But I think in terms of remote learning, it's interesting. I think we can see that as we're recording this now, you know, this is the week that everyone's heading back to school from the from the winter break, and many schools are facing, an, you know, another round of shutdowns. And I think parents, rightly so, are exasperated, and I think reluctant, really reluctant, to go back to having the online, you know, ha- being online. I think we're going to have to develop more robust solutions than just expecting students from kindergarten onwards to spend all day on Zoom and think that that cuts it. I think that students have probably not learned a lot in terms of what we expect students to learn. I think that they've learned a lot of other things, good or bad, but I don't think that remote learning, I don't think the future of the future is online learning is something that a lot of technologists have been saying for a very long time. Isn't it going to be great when we can all just go to school online from our pajamas and spend all day on the internet rather than having to go to school. And I think the consensus from, I'll say like 97% of students is, oh, hell no, God, no, it's the worst. <laughs> and so, I mean, I hope that maybe it'll, we can dial in some of the sort of techno, unexamined techno optimism and have more practical supports, realistic supports for the kinds of things that we expect schools to do. Thank you so much, Audrey Waters. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and colleagues. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs 
with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.